Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. I'm your host, Rabbi Miriam Terlinchamp, and in this episode, we discuss Walter Brueggemann's article, Not Numbed Inside. Walter has a conversation with five individuals from the Common Good Collective. Check the show notes for a link to the article and bios, and we'll start with the introductions. All right, Walter, good to see you. Greg Gerald from Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay, how you doing? All right, good to be with you today. So good. real quick, the other folks in the room, um, if, they, if you would just tell us, uh, tell us your name and, your, uh, and where you're coming to us from. Hey, Walter, it's great to meet you. My name is Shannon Mannon, and I'm coming from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, outside of Philly. Walter, it's good to see, see you. Haven't seen you since 2018, prior to your relocation to Michigan. Yeah. Demetrius Edwards, caller from Oakland, California. So grateful to be able to be on here with you guys. Good. Great. Hi, Walter. I'm Courtney Napier. I um, help with the reader. I'm here for, um, from Nightdale, North Carolina. Okay. Well, so, uh, Walter, let's jump into this, uh, this article that we've been reading and talking about called Not Numbed Inside. Uh, among the things that you point to there, um, some of the work that Phyllis Tribble did, around uh, the, the notion of God's compassion being as a womb and the, those words being related. Yeah. I was particularly struck by her translation from Isaiah 63 that sort of makes this parallelism between a womb and compassion and right. strength and might. Yeah. So I thought that might be a good place for us to kick off yeah. this little discussion, strength and might as compassion. Well, I, uh, first of all, I want to say that I think Phyllis Tribble's work is uh, quite astonishing. We were uh, schoolmates in graduate school long ago. I, I would take her words to mean uh, compassion that is exercised with uh, effective seriousness is a mighty force that has a transformative capacity. Uh, so it's not soft and romantic but it is really uh, confronting personal reality and social reality and affecting change. And indeed, I think that's what, that's what mother love at its best is capable of doing. Uh, mother love can readily transform the world of a child. I think the examples of uh, compassion in both the Old and New Testaments are acts of transformation that restore life. They, they almost amount to uh, something like resurrections, I think, restoration. Your words uh, remind me of the line that Dorothy Day used to quote from uh, the, brother, the Brothers Karamazov, where the, the priest says that love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. Well, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, our little work here that you've been a part of uh, is called Common Good Collective. And so there's also this dance of the, the individual and the collective. Right. It's one thing to, um, to activate, in your words, uh, energize our own individual innards, yeah. but another to activate uh, the innards of a society that's built around individualism and greed. That's right. Yep. So, so where, where are we supposed to go with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, I suppose there are, uh, uh, I can think of two components of that. One is liturgy. Liturgy is uh, uh, an action that binds us into a, a common imagination. Uh, and the other one, uh, as we all know, is organize, organize, organize. That's right. Uh, so uh, the, the uh, symbiotic relationship between liturgy and organizing, it seems to me, uh, uh, is what is the work that has to be done uh, if we are to uh, mobilize social power and not just well-meaning individuals. I think that the major movements of Black Lives Matter and uh, the Me Too movement and all of that are, are exactly examples of, uh, uh, of that kind of exercise that is capable of uh, getting people's attention and helping people rethink Maybe eventually it leads to policy. Walter, I think one of the things that, and Greg, you're leading into this, it, it sparked a, a, almost like what I say, a combined question. When you made reference to compassion, equating that well, to the work about being a womb, and I'm beginning to think about the ways that patriarchy kind of looks at compassion, feminine traits as antithetical for the work that we are supposed to be doing. Can we even maybe think about ways that patriarchy kind of e tries to erase those characteristics that are godly part of God's uh, yeah. entire being and how that is dangerous when we yeah. cut those parts off well, what uh, I, and what, keep us from being compassionate? What I wanna do is to make a distinction between ideology and narrative. And I think uh, ideology floats above narrative and patriarchy is one form of ideology. And what ideology does is to cause us to deny our own narratives to accommodate somebody else's narrative. So the work, it seems to me, is to help people get below whatever ideology they're hooked in, including liberalism, down to specific narratives of pain and possibility. And I think that when we are held by an ideology, we become alienated from our own narrative of pain and possibility. And when we are alienated from our own narrative of pain and possibility, then we cannot make contact with anybody else's narrative of pain and possibility. The, the work, it seems to me, is to expose the way in which ideology, patriarchy among them, leads to despair and denial and the cover-up of our primal narratives. That's how my mind works about it. Does that make sense to you? Makes makes too much sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, Walter, I'm wondering if that, in that like kind of line of progression, are you saying um, narrative, I'm just like replacing story, somehow getting connected in with your own story or getting conscious of the story that you tell yourself about yourself or about others? Is it necessary first step before you can act on? I, I guess, could you talk a little bit more about how we have to like wrestle with our own stories before we can serve each other? I wouldn't necessarily say it's necessary, but it seems to be most likely. If you think, for example, of the kinds of people that are supporting Trump, they are willing to sign on with Trump even though it contradicts their own personal story 
of what they want and what they need and what they hope for. So they got very little contact with their own selves because they have signed on uh, to this ideology. So yes, that's exactly what I mean to be saying. Uh, and I think the more vigorously we are trapped in an ideology, the less we understand the wonder and the problematic of our own narrative, because everybody's story is wondrous and problematic. But we don't have to communicate about that if we've got a coverall ideology that displaces it. That's what I think. You've been listening to the Common Good Podcast, a conversation about the significance of place, eliminating economic isolation, and the structure of belonging. Following Walter's emphasis on the narratives of pain and possibility, this is a poem from David White. It's called seeming stillness. We love the movement in a seeming stillness, the breath in the body of the loved one sleeping, the highest leaves in the silent wood, a great migration in the sky above, the waters of the earth, the blood in the body, the first soft stir and silence beneath a strident voice, the internal hands of our mind, always searching for touch, Thought seeking other thoughts, seeking other minds, the great arrival of form through all hidden themes. In this breath, in this body, able just for a moment to give and to take, to ask and to be told, to find and be found, to bless and be blessed, to hold and be held. We are all a sunlit moment come from a long darkness. What moves us always comes from what is hidden. What seems to be said so suddenly has lived in the body for a long, long time. Our life like a breath then, a give and a take, a bridge, a central movement between singing a separate self and learning to be selfless. Breathe then, as if breathing for the first time, as if remembering with what difficulty you came into the world, what strength it took to make that first impossible in-breath into a cry to be heard by the world. Your essence has always been that first vulnerability of being found, of being heard, and of being seen. And from the very beginning, the one who has always needed and been given so much invisible help. This is how you were when you first came into the world. This is how you are now, all unawares, in your new body and your new life. This is the raw vulnerability of your every day, and this is how you will want to be and be remembered when you leave the world. Now, as we return to the conversation, you'll notice a very familiar name. Walter, you know, one of the things I, I was talking to uh, Rabbi Miriam down in Cincinnati uh, recently about the notion of uh, compassion fatigue. I made the statement that I wonder how the creator of the universe doesn't experience compassion fatigue. And her, and her response was, how do you understand the flood? How do you understand what's going on within Noah's Ark? And I just said, well, I guess I don't have a thought about this right now, but I want to ask Walter. (laughs) 
So how, how does empathy and compassion in the sense of what's happening within the flood, how, how do you reconcile? How do you hold these things in tension? Well, it seems to me, I, I don't know what uh, Miriam might have had in mind, but uh, at, the, at the beginning of the flood story, God does not exhibit any compassion for the people that he's about to destroy. It seems to me that the, the narrative turns when uh, God remembers Abraham remembers the kind of intimate covenantal commitments that God made to Abraham and to Israel and so on, so that what happens in the flood story, uh, nothing, nothing happens about human nature. It says their imagination was evil at the beginning, and their imagination is evil at the end. What changed was God's inclination from anger to compassion that then leads to the rainbow and restoration and all that. And it seems to me that that uh, maybe God had a, I hadn't thought of it that way, but maybe God had a restoration of some compassion as he pondered that his, uh, that God's wholesale flood was about to destroy the people to whom God had made a promise. I said, Abraham, it's Noah. It's- the, the, this, this notion, Walter, that you just uh, introduced, the, the restoration of compassion or the restoration of empathy, how might a neighborhood, how might a congregation go about that work? Well, I don't know. But what I, what I think is, it's to create safe environments for storytelling in which people might be able to get honest enough to tell the primal stories of hurt and healing in their own lives. And I think most people have them. Most people can remember some great moment of woundedness that needs to be lined out in great detail. And most people can remember some moment when somebody said something or made a gesture or something like that that transformed their self-understanding. And those narratives need to be told and heard, I think, with great specificity. Uh, And I think a local congregation uh, is a place to do that. I suppose it's like uh, recovery groups in some ways in which you have to tell your story and have it received and have it honored. In the retelling of the story where it is heard and honored, I think one discovers transformative resources that are likely to be available that are not available in any other way, I think. The, the common uh, liturgies of the church that walk us through, you know, sin and grace or whatever that is, are, are, a, are a wonderful scaffold out of which to witness to our personal experiences of sin and grace or, or despair and hope or whatever they are. So this is not disconnected from the work of liturgy, uh, but it has a kind of a specificity to it. I wonder too, like one of the, the more, the more specific our stories are, like the more universal they are. Um, Isn't that so weird? (laughs) When we tell these really broad stories, they don't like connect as much as sometimes really, really specific ones. Can you, I wonder Walter, like in your experience with stories and people holding them for other people, What's that like transformation? Can you like get a little more into like what does happen in those spaces when we are really honest about stories? Like what's that thing? Well, I don't know, but what I what I guess it is, it is the amazing experience 
of me being taken seriously in all my honesty, of, of having my story heard, taken seriously and honored. What it does, it, it valorizes me. You know, it's like one-on-one -on -one psychotherapy. If, if someone has seriously received my narrative, I don't have to carry it around and be trapped by it anymore. And it seems to me that if you, if you work in a group with this, when somebody tells their story, one of the leadership maneuvers is to say to the group, what does that story remind you of? And everybody else in the group will be reminded of a story in their lives that triggers. And what begins to happen is that we discover we are all carrying around very intimately connected narratives to which we have not been given access uh, because we've been so busy performing, so busy with ideology, so busy with achievement. So I think this just takes a, a great deal of safe time. Hi, Walter. Um, Hi. This is all very interesting for me because I, I became a journalist about a, a year and a half ago. And now I'm kind of venturing, dipping my toes into some personal narrative writing, yeah. which is terrifying. <laughs> it's very scary to tell your story, I'm realizing. I have been thinking a lot, especially since reading your, your what I like to call a sermon. I felt like I was being preached to in the best way when <laughs> I read Not Numb Inside. The idea of why people choose ideology over our stories. I, I think personally for me, what, I, what I've realized trying to articulate my story for public viewing is how scary it is to, to look back on things that have occurred and trying to find a way to communicate that and just the whole vulnerability of it all. And so, um, but I would love to know just from your perspective, why people choose ideology or what you've observed, why they choose ideology over sharing their personal stories. I think it's safer. You, you just said it. You, you feel exposed. You, you can uh, sign on to an ideology, whatever it is, and you are not personally exposed then. So you can sustain a cover-up about all of that in that way. So it occurs to me that, that in, the, in the narratives of Jesus, where Jesus has compassion, those are all quite specific personal encounters in which Jesus can perceive what is going on in that life and makes contact with it. And I suppose that in the, in the gospel narratives, the, the Pharisees represent ideology because they don't, they, don't want, they don't want that stuff exposed. They don't want uh, the stories of nobody's told or heard. They don't want that attention to go to suckers and losers <laughs> and all that. So that's what I think. Well, Walter, we we thank you for this really powerful and, and relatively brief conversation. I've got one more question for you. You've been writing and preaching in the public eye for probably close to 60 years now. Yes. And you seem to have not become numb inside yourself. So <laughs> So what are, what are the practices, what, what are the things you do to stay innervated? 
For me, it is basically looking at the biblical text every day. That's what I do for a couple hours every day. And uh, as you know, it's a gift that keeps on giving. And I am surrounded by good people who uh, sustain me in that and give me good feedback and care about me. That certainly is at the center of it. I don't expect most people to uh, spend that time with the Bible every day, but that's my calling. And so that's what I do. And I am uh, endlessly energized by it. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate you being with us. Well, it's great to talk. I'm grateful for uh, what each of you are doing. I'm glad we uh, intersect this way. Thanks for listening. You can find more information about the Common Good Collective at commongood.cc. Be sure to find the link to the article in the bios in the show notes. The Common Good is hosted by me, Rabbi Miriam Turlinchip, and produced by the amazing Joey Taylor with music from Jeff Gorman.